The room of sports reporters waited in anticipation as the interim head coach, John L. Smith, took his seat behind the podium mics. The year was uh, 2012. The month was September. And Coach Smith had taken over coaching duties for the University of Arkansas uh, after his former boss, uh, former head football coach Bobby Petrino, had abruptly crashed and crashed his coaching career at Arkansas in an infamous motorcycle accident. Now, Petrino had left a preseason top 10 Arkansas team to his former assistant coach, John L. Smith. But now, three games into the season, Smith's Razorbacks were unranked, having dropped out of the top 25 like swift flowing rainwater down a drain pipe. After losing to humble Louisiana Monroe University in overtime, and then getting stomped at home by Alabama by a score that I will not mention. Smith uneasily shifted in his seat behind the podium mics and, and looked out at the room full of reporters who on behalf of Razorback fans everywhere would be asking the hard questions and looking for an explanation. But before they could lob the first question at him, Smith nervously began questioning the reporters. He, he said, is everybody ready? Let's go. And then, and then he said, you guys act like it's, uh, pick it up a little bit, okay? Get your chin up. Smile, smile. He, he, he stared across the room to see if the reporters were obeying his, his command, his nervous order to smile. Smile, okay? You guys all right? If not, I'm not talking. Let's get rolling. Not the smoothest start to a press conference. And as the video clips and audio clips of Smith's nervous commands to, to smile circulated among Razorback fans, it felt to many like battery acid poured on a fresh wound. For them, this was no time to smile. And they, and they didn't blame the sports reporters for reflecting their mood to Coach Smith. The command to smile felt insensitive and ridiculous. It felt as though Coach Smith didn't want to admit the obvious, that the team was struggling. And on top of that, it, was, it felt like he was demanding that they just, they just pretend like everything was okay. It felt like a heartless demand to fake happiness when, as far as the football team went, there was little to be happy about. Well, often, as we live life in this troubled world, it can seem as though there's little to be happy about. And yet, as Christians, as we read the Bible, we come to texts like the ones we'll be considering this morning, which command us to rejoice and to rejoice always. And sometimes in our weakness, not understanding these passages as they're meant to be understood, not knowing how we can possibly obey them, they, they hit us in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our grief, and we may struggle in our weakness to see much difference in the words of our loving and faithful and compassionate Father in heaven and the demands of Coach Smith to smile. But as we take a closer look, as we're going to do this morning, as we tune our ears again to listen to the words of our God and Savior, we come to see that the differences are enormous. We see that our Saviors are not insensitive demands. They're words of compassion spoken by the one who created our souls, who crafted our ability to feel, who made our emotions, and who understands our emotions better than we do ourselves. These are not heartless commands to paste a fake smile over our grief. Words of command, yes, but words that call us to hope, to real and genuine joy-giving hope. 
Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3, page 923 in the Pew Bibles. Philippians 3, and we'll be looking at verse 1 this morning, the first part of verse 1. And then we'll also be looking a little further down to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, which if you're using the Pew Bible will just be on the next page over, page 924. And these commands to rejoice are repeated over and over again in Philippians. And so I wanted to have us look at both of these texts to kind of get a sense of the repetition of how this command is emphasized in this letter. And so we're going to read Philippians 3 and verse 1, and then also Philippians 4, verse 4. And as you come to your place in God's Word, I would ask if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 3 and verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then looking over to the next page to Philippians 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You may be seated. So, my Christian brother, my Christian sister, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. When God repeats something over and over and over again, I mean, listen, if God says something once, it should catch our attention. But if God says something over and over and over, it's important. It's doubly, it's triply important. The main lesson of these, of these verses is simply that. Rejoice in the Lord and do so always. Rejoice in the Lord always. And my aim in this sermon is to show the necessity of rejoicing in the Lord always. To show how joy is not optional for the Christian, but it's indispensable I'll, I'll seek to unpack this and press this home in six ways this morning. Six ways. First, what is it to rejoice? Secondly, that we are to rejoice in the Lord. Third, who is to rejoice? Fourth, that rejoicing in the Lord is not optional. So this is not a suggestion, but a command. Fifth, when we are to rejoice, always. And sixth, what to do when we feel unable to rejoice? What to do when we feel unable? So let's, let's jump right in. We've got some ground to cover this morning. To begin, let's define our term. What does it mean to rejoice? What is it to rejoice? Rejoicing is the overflow of deep and genuine joy in the soul. What's called for here is not pasted on smiles and heartless going through the motions, praise and worship. This isn't half-hearted, hollow expressions of joy. That's not what's being called for here. Note that, that Paul doesn't just tell the Philippians, hey, smile. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, look happy. He doesn't say, appear to be rejoicing. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord. There's a difference. And it's not, it, it is not the mere appearance of joy that is commanded here. We're not told to wear masks of happiness around that cover our gloomy hearts. That will not do. No, the Holy Spirit here in these verses is calling for genuine, real joy. Rejoice in the Lord. The joy in mind here is that joy that comes from God, which is described as, one, as, as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. 
Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, in a parting address before the crucifixion, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That my joy may be in you. Christ was not one who went about faking happiness. B.B. Warfield said that if, if our Lord was a man of sorrows, he was more profoundly still the man of joy. He came with glad tidings of great joy that would be to all people. Our Lord, as the sweet psalmist of Israel could say in the words of Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O Lord. He was sustained with that invisible hidden manna of delight which filled his soul better than a Thanksgiving dinner at grandma's house. He said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He delighted in obeying the Father. Even in his darkest hour at the cross, joy was on his mind in the midst of his sorrows. As we read in Hebrews 12, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. His joy was real, not fake, no facade of hypocrisy. And he means, according to his word, to his disciples in John 15, to impart his joy to us. That his joy wouldn't just be like in front of us out there, not just floating out there in outer space in the ether somewhere that for us to look at from a distance, but that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. So what is it to rejoice in these verses? It's the overflow of deep and genuine joy in the soul, Christ's joy, the joy which the Holy Spirit cultivates in the believer. It's not to paste on a fake smile, is to feel and express genuine gladness. But secondly, we need to consider that we're called to rejoice in the Lord. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. Now this could be taken in a couple different ways, both of which would be true. This, this calling to rejoice in the Lord could be speaking as, as the Lord as the object of our worship. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, in the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord. Not because you've, not because you've numbed your consciousness and escaped reality through some, through some uh, weed or some wine. Godly rejoicing is in the Lord. It's not because you've, you've escaped the troubles of this world somehow. Paul could rejoice from prison, not because they snuck him a, a bottle of gin. Godly rejoicing is a rejoicing in truth, in the reality of who God is and what God does. It's not a rejoicing in fantasy. That's the devil's counterfeit. It, it steals true and lasting joy for a cheap, hollow dream that turns into a real-life nightmare when you finally wake up in hell. Biblical joy is a supernatural thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit of God, not the effect of a chemical substance altering your consciousness in your brain. It's not, it's not a high that anyone could get, whether or not they have the Holy Spirit or not. Rejoice in the Lord, not in weed or in wine, Rejoice in the Lord. While others rejoice in sin, in wealth, in late nights at the club, while others rejoice and sing the, the praises of the pleasures of sin, we who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb rejoice in Him who is our God, our Savior, and our treasure. We don't have to escape reality to rejoice. We rejoice in the truth, in what is true. He is the good of all goods to us, the excellence of all excellency, the pleasure of pleasures, 
the delight of delights, the love of loves. He is our portion, and compared to him, we have nothing else. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Rejoice in the Lord and he who is our sovereign king before whom every knee will bow as we sung about. The the one who loves us and who has served us to the point of death, though he is God and though we ought to have been serving him. And yet he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Rejoice in the Lord that he is our righteousness, that he is our wisdom and our sanctification and our redemption, that he is our life, our advocate, our high priest, our strong tower and refuge, our king, our father, our brother, our helper, our friend, our husband, our good shepherd. He is our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Rejoice in the Lord. But perhaps... Rejoice in the Lord could also be taken uh, not just objectively as, the, as he's the object of our rejoicing, but instrumentally, that we're to rejoice in his help as he helps us to rejoice, to rejoice in the strength that he provides to do so. When we're weak, when we lack the strength to rejoice in and of our own emotional capacities, We lean into those new creation capacities that he's given us, that he works in us as he works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I think it could carry both of those nuances, that we're to rejoice in the Lord as the object of our rejoicing, as we delight in him. I think that's probably the primary meaning here. But also that we rejoice in him, in the strength that he provides But thirdly, who is to rejoice? Who is to rejoice? Is this just addressed generally to anyone and everyone who would happen to read it? Remember that the Philippians, that that this letter to the Philippians is addressed to Christians. Philippians 1.1 says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So this is speaking to saints, to holy ones. In other words, those who have been made holy through faith in Christ. Everyone who is trusting in the Lord Jesus for their salvation and who has the righteousness of Christ given to them as a gift through faith in him. Here in Philippians 3.1, notice that it says, Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Now, this, this word brothers doesn't mean that the sisters You know, I'm just talking to the men here. Sisters, you can't rejoice. That's not the point here. Adelphos in the Greek uh, could refer generally to both men and women. There's even a note in the ESV that explains that this term had the connotation of brothers and sisters. So this isn't excluding the women. However, Adelphos, brothers, is a term of closeness. It's It's family language, right? It's how Christians in the early church would address one another. In 1 Corinthians 5.11, those who, quote, bear the name of brother, that's used synonymously with those who are within the church. In other words, Christians. To be a, quote, brother, to bear the name of brother was to be considered part of the family of God, those belonging to the Christian faith. So who's being called to rejoice in the Lord? Not the unbelieving pagan Romans, the worshipers of of Jupiter and Mars, not the unbelieving Jews who rejected the Messiah, only those who were Christians, who believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Christians are called to rejoice in the Lord. Is this just straining at gnats? Like, is there any real significance in that? Well, the Bible does show us that if you're not a Christian, and if, if Christ is not your Savior, if you've not come to God on God's terms by, by pleading with Him for mercy and pardon on the basis of Jesus' sacrificial death 
on the cross. If you're not a Christian, then you don't have reason to rejoice in God. You don't have reason to rejoice in the Lord. You, you have reason to be terrified of the Lord, to be in dread of the Lord. You've transgressed His holy and infinite majesty. You've broken His laws. You've committed treason against His kingly authority. All of us have. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And apart from Christ, there's no way for us to make amends. We can't remedy the situation by anything that we would do. No amount of tears or penance or good works could ever wipe away the stain of our sin. But God says to us, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And he does so by the blood of Christ. Praise the Lord. There, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. But friends, unless we have come to that fountain, unless we've come to the cross and had our sins washed away by his precious blood, by trusting in his finished work, then we can't rejoice in the Lord. Revelation 6 gives us a picture of the terror that will be felt by those who see Jesus when he comes back to judge the world in righteousness. This is those who have not been reconciled to God and had their sins pardoned. Those that the Bible says the wrath of God abides on them. It says in Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Listen, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the Savior, and today is the day of salvation. But if you neglect his salvation, as the book of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape? And then on that day, even before the Lamb of God, they will say, hide us from his wrath. If he's not your savior, he'll condemn you as your judge. If he's not your Lord now, then you'll be forced to, to bow in, in terror and in shame at his appearing. Unless he's your Lord, unless he's your savior, you have every reason to be terrified of him, but no reason to rejoice in him. And so can you rejoice in the Lord? Well, it depends on who you are. It depends on how things stand between you and God. Are you reconciled to God through Christ? Then you can rejoice. Are you not reconciled to God through Christ? You could rejoice if you come. And so, my friend, if you have not come to Christ, come to him so that coming to him you may rejoice. He is, listen, Jesus, his, his arms are open to receive any who would come to him. He says, any who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Come to him that you may rejoice, that he may be your savior and that you may rejoice in his salvation. Well, having defined what it is to rejoice, and, and secondly, that we're to rejoice in the Lord. And after thinking about who is being called to rejoice, we can now turn our attention to the important fact that rejoicing in the Lord is not optional. This is our fourth point. Rejoicing in the Lord is not optional for the Christian. This is not a suggestion, but it's a command. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Do you see a qualification there? Does it say anywhere, you know, like, hey, if you feel like it, that is. Is there a footnote that says, if you think that it's, it's fitting, if you're in the mood, rejoice in the Lord? Does it say, you know, unless your personality type isn't disposed to rejoicing, 
I can't find any such qualifications in my Bible. If you're a Christian, your calling is to rejoice in the Lord. And this is not to paste on a fake smile. It's to experience genuine, real joy in the depth of your soul that overflows in expressions of praise, gladness, and rejoicing. There's a command here, but there's, there's no suggestions or qualifications. Rejoicing is not optional for the Christian. Paul doesn't write, you know, hey, y'all, wouldn't it be cool if we rejoiced in the Lord? I mean, if, you, if you're feeling it, you know, no pressure. I just thought maybe this would be fun. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But what a delightful duty this is, right? I love what Charles Spurgeon said uh, towards the end of his life, a life in ministry in which he, he knew what it was to struggle with deep depression. Uh, he knew by personal experience what that was. At times he would get done preaching and he would go back to his house and collapse on his floor in tears utterly emptied of all, of all strength and weep all afternoon. But Charles Spurgeon knew what it was to suffer depression. But towards the end of his life, towards the end of his ministry, he preached a sermon called Joy, a Duty. And he said in that sermon, he said, what a gracious God we serve who makes delight to be a duty and who commands us to rejoice should we not at once be obedient to such a command as this? He said, the fly is drowned in the honey or the sweet syrup into which he plunges himself, but this heavenly syrup of delight will not drown your soul or intoxicate your heart. It will do you good and not evil all the days of your life. Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. And this is a great example of that ease and that lightness he invites poor and weary and downcast sinners to him. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Here's what I command of you. Rejoice. I want my joy to be in you. Your duty is to delight in me. What a good and a gracious God we serve. Brothers and sisters, This also shows us, though, that, that it is nevertheless a duty to rejoice. And this shows us that, that God does command our emotions. Our emotions, as one pastor puts it, are not amoral. It's not like they're neutral. Emotions, the way we feel, can be good and holy, or our emotions can be sinful and unholy. And we're called to to turn away from and repent of sinful emotions, and we're called to cultivate and to feel holy emotions. Listen, friends, as Christians, we're not bound by our emotions. We're not like a sled being pulled helplessly behind a spooked horse to be drugged whithersoever our emotions take us. We never have to say, I can't help the way I feel. Hey, listen, before Christ, that may have been true. But now we are a new creation. God has given us new capacities that we didn't have before. There is a new power within us. The Holy Spirit of God who works in us not just to do his good pleasure, but to will his good pleasure. He gives us not only the resolve to carry things out, but the desire to do what is good. He who spoke light out of darkness, who raised up dry land from the depths of the sea and created our capacity to feel, now commands our emotions. Our emotions are part of our humanity. And there is no part of us that Christ is not redeeming. There's no part of us that he says, well, I can, I can mostly save this person, but I, unfortunately, I can't do anything about their emotions. That's gonna just have to be I'll leave that to the devil. No, our emotions belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we are to delight in righteousness and in goodness and in beauty and in truth as he did, as he does. So those that, that would say also that it would just kind of downplay emotions, you know, say maybe they, they're, they, they emphasize duty and, you know, who cares about how you feel? All that mushy-gushy stuff, just do it, you know, like Nike. Uh, but sometimes, you know, I've heard, I've heard Christians, well-meaning Christians talk this way, like, you know, hey, we just need to get out of our feelings. That's irrelevant. Just do it. Just do your duty. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how you feel. Well, that sounds good, but what do you do when you come to a text like this where your duty is to feel? Your duty is to feel joy in the Lord. What do you do then? Brothers and sisters, part of our duty is to delight in the Lord and to experience real and genuine joy in the Lord. Now, as I've, as I've noted, this command is repeated over and over again, and it's probably repeated because it's so hard. <laughs> you know? It seems so hard, and yet it, it may also be repeated because though it's so hard, it's also so possible. Rejoice, rejoice. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. It's like Paul saying, yes, I know what you're thinking. I know that you're being persecuted. I know that I'm in prison. I know you thought Epaphroditus was about to die. I know that you don't know where your next meal might be coming from. But I'm going to say it again. I will say to you again, rejoice. Yes, it's hard. And yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. Brothers and sisters, rejoicing in the Lord is not optional for you and I, just as it wasn't optional for the Philippian believers and for Paul. We're sinning if we do not rejoice in the Lord. But aren't there times for sorrow, for mourning? That's a good question. That leads us to our fifth point. When are we to rejoice? Well, Philippians 4.4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always, at all times. Joy should abide within us and, and be constant as the sun abides in the noonday sky during the day. You know, as a cloud may cross across the, the face of the sky and it may hide the sun for a moment, but the sun is still there lighting up the sky. The, the beams of joy may shine through even though the clouds of sorrow may pass over for a time, the joy should never set. There's a time to weep. At times we're called, I mean, even in the book of James, it says, be wretched and mourn and weep. There's a time to weep with those who weep. But evidently, this isn't contrary to the deep abiding joy that we possess as believers. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope, not as others do. As I've said before, joy and sorrow can both exist, and at times they must both exist in the believer. Joy in the Lord and rejoicing in Him always, that doesn't mean that our faces have to be constantly glued, super glued in the smile position. That's not what the Apostle Paul intended. It's not, what, it's not what the Lord intended here. It's, it's not what he exemplified. It's not what Jesus exemplified. The clouds of sorrow may come and go, but the beams of joy must be ready to shine through always. Sometimes we must mourn over sin. As Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But even this is in concert with the joy of in the Lord. It's not as though, it's not as though um, we've got to stop playing this song so we could play this other one. This is more of a symphony where there's, there's minor keys and major keys and it's playing together. I love what uh, Chrysostom said. He said, this joy is not contrary to that grief. He's talking about the grief of, you know, mourning over our sin. 
But from that grief, it too is born. For he who grieveth for his own faults and confesseth them rejoiceth. Moreover, it is possible to grieve for our own sins and yet to rejoice in Christ. Recall who's writing this, right? Paul, the prisoner for the Lord's sake, persecuted for his faith, the one who'd endured beatings, stonings, mockings, slanders, and a host of other hostilities, all you know, wrongfully for Christ's sake. This Paul, who'd himself been pressed to the point where, as he says, he once despaired of life itself, this servant of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. God is always faithful. Our Lord is always faithful. His ways to us are always mercy, even when we don't see it. All things are working together for our good if we are among the redeemed. As Romans 8 says, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we always have good reason to rejoice, no matter what. We can rejoice in Him in the good times, and we rejoice in Him in the bad times. And that doesn't mean that we can't ever shed tears of sorrow. But underneath all of that, there is a deep and abiding joy that is to be ours. At all times, may God be the reason for our joy, and may we rejoice in the Lord. But sixth and lastly, what do we do when we feel unable to rejoice in the Lord? What do we do when rejoicing seems impossible? All right, maybe you're, you've been tracking along and you're like, all right, I, I can see that this is a command, that it's a duty, and yes, it says rejoice in the Lord always, but, but how? I mean, I, what do I do? Is there some hidden knob in my brain that I just reach up and, and turn and just turn on the joy all of a sudden? How does this work? Brothers and sisters, when joy seems impossible, I want to encourage you, first of all, thank the Lord for his patience. Thank the Lord for his patience, because though we do not delight in him as we should, as he is worthy of, as he deserves, though our rejoicing in him is such a poor and weak response to his love and kindness to us, he is patient with us moment by moment. Even in those moments when we really are rejoicing in the Lord, when we're singing from a heart full of gladness and thankfulness, even then, our rejoicing in Him is not what it should be. But He's patient with us. He does not quench the smoking flax. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He tends His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arm. He carries them in His bosom and gently leads those who are with young. Brothers and sisters, remember that we never love Christ as much as He loves us. We never love Christ as much as He loves us. He is more committed to our good than we're committed to His glory, even in our best moments. He is more faithful than we are. So thank Him for His patience. But then, brother, sister, Feed your mind with truth about God. This is the pathway to rejoicing. Make it your aim to better know God, His character, His goodness, His power, His love. The Psalms are a great example of this, right? So, so many of the Psalms, they call us to praise God. They call us to rejoice in God. But they don't stop with that. Right? What do they do next? They go into doctrine. They go into theology. Now, you may not have seen it as doctrine and theology, but that's what it is when it starts talking about who God is and, and what God's done. It's when it says, praise the Lord, rejoice in God, 
for he is this way. You know, he's, he's near to the brokenhearted. He's, he's a refuge and a strong tower. Rejoice in God because of who he is. These truths need to be in our minds so that they will fuel our faith and fuel our rejoicing. It says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 that, and it's, it's here again, it's speaking to suffering Christians. Christians who are being severely persecuted And it it says that though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You believe in him and rejoice. So what this verse is is showing us is that, that faith and joy, they come together. And as our, as our faith increases, our joy comes with it. Believing, you believe in him and rejoice. Brothers and sisters, what do we take from this? How, how does our faith grow, right? If, if rejoicing comes with believing, well, how do we get our faith to grow? Well, we need to, again, feed our minds with the truth of God's Word. One pastor explains that right thinking about God produces and cultivates godly emotions, such as peace, joy, confidence, and hope. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so how is our thinking about God clarified? How is our faith strengthened by constant exposure to God's truth revealed in the Bible? We need to be reading his words, thinking about his words. What does this tell me about my God and what he's promised me and who he is? Meditating on these things, turning them over and over again in our minds, thinking about God, listening to his words. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice, these things I have spoken to you. He's he's communicated something that is for our joy. What God has spoken, the word of the Lord recorded in Scripture, is for our joy. His words are like cargo trains loaded down with the precious cargo of truth to our weary, impoverished souls, bringing golden promises and silver comforts, bringing living water to thirsty souls and the bread of life to starving souls. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to strengthen our faith so that believing, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. The Psalms are are faithful medicine to soothe and heal. They're, they're, they're like balm to heal the wounds of sufferers, especially the psalms of lament. Psalms like Psalm 6, Psalm 73. When you, when you read these psalms, you can relate to the pain. The, the pain of human emotion and all of its rawness. And yet, What's going on? These are cries to God. It's it's doing what 1 Peter 5 says, casting your cares upon him, for he cares for you. At some point in the Psalms of of Lament, there's typically a turning point, a a place where where the the casting of our cares upon God, it, it, it turns, and the psalmist starts preaching to himself. A a place where truth about God is, is brought to mind, God's character, God's promises. It's like, yes, I'm in this pit of despair. Yes, my enemies are circling around me like like a pack of hungry jackals. But then it's like he, he looks up and he remembers, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He will not forsake me. Truth about God comes to the mind, and many of these psalms, they end in rejoicing as a result of that truth. 
And so we see that trajectory from, from the depths of sorrow to the mountain peaks of joy. And, and how does he get there? Truth believed upon in the mind causes joy in the soul. And so let these psalms be our guide. Let, let them walk with us as we fight for joy. The psalms also teach us that when we as Christians when we stray into sin, our fellowship and our joy in the Lord is hindered. Sometimes we lack joy because we're in sin and the Lord is disciplining us. Psalm 32, King David shares what this is like. He says, when, I, when he kept silent, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Like his very bones were just disintegrating in his body. He just lacked strength. He says, For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Have you ever been there, brother, sister, where you've just felt that conviction of sin, where the Lord's hand was heavy, heavy upon you? My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But what did he do? What does he do? He says he confessed his sin. He acknowledged it to the, to the Lord, and the Lord forgave him. And by the end of this psalm, he's encouraging others to rejoice. He says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Also, again, Psalm 51, one of the most well-known psalms of, of confession, right? Right? where David confesses and repents of his adultery. And he prays there to the Lord. He, he confesses his sin to God. And he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Why? Because his joy and his gladness had vanished. He thought that Bathsheba would bring him joy and gladness. But his joy and gladness had gone. He, he prays, he cries out to God, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I've lost my joy, God. Give it back, I pray. Forgive me of my sin. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So brothers and sisters, sometimes we're lacking joy because the Lord's hand is heavy upon us. He's, he's confronting us of a sin. But when we come to him and confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can once again rejoice in the Lord. James 5.13 also provides some good application for the believer. Sometimes we're suffering, and, and it's not directly because of our sin. Maybe we're just going through a trial or a persecution. Maybe we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. James 5.13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Because when we're suffering, what's the temptation? The temptation is to grumble, to complain. And so if that's the way you're being tempted, if, if rejoicing is a struggle because you're suffering, then pray. Ask God to help you to rejoice in your suffering. Pray. Read scripture, meditate on scripture, gather with God's people. Now, I, love, I love how James 5.13 also says, is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing, let him sing praise. Has your joy come to the point of cheerfulness? Then express it in songs and praise to God. Don't stifle and suffocate your, your joy. Don't hide it under a bushel because you're afraid of what people, like they might, may not think I'm normal. I hope they don't think we're normal. We're supposed to be the children of God, lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Praise God if people come to us and say, why are you so happy? Well, what's this reason for the hope that is within you? Sometimes it's good for us to sing and resolve to sing even though we're not feeling it yet. Sometimes it's it's. it's right for us to come to church, to come to worship the Lord and to sing his praises, even though we might be disobeying the call to worship I read this morning, which says, come into his, 
presence with gladness and singing. You might sometimes wonder, well, I don't feel glad. I don't, I don't feel the joy of the Lord. I might just stay home today until I feel it. I may not read my Bible because I'm just not feeling it. Um, I love what one pastor said. He said, that just makes you a chain sinner. You're, you're lighting up one sin after another. Two sins don't make a right. Just because you're not rejoicing in doing your duty to God doesn't mean that you should not do your duty at all. Two wrongs don't make a right. It's wrong not to rejoice in the Lord genuinely. It's doubly wrong to not even try. I heard of some of our fellow Christians in Africa, and one of their church leaders, he said, when we're happy, we sing. And when we aren't happy, we sing until we get happy. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Brothers and sisters, it, it is our sin when we struggle to rejoice in the Lord. That's, that's sin. That just shows that our faith is weak. We don't, we don't worship God as he deserves. We don't love him as we should. He who loved us to the point of pouring out his very life for our salvation. But praise God, that's no surprise to Jesus. That doesn't surprise him at all. Let us thank him for his patience and pray for his help and resolve to fight for our joy one day at a time by God's grace. And you'll be enabled more and more to rejoice in the Lord always. There's much more that we could say on, on how to fight for joy like any other sin struggle, brothers and sisters. This is an ongoing battle. And some of us, We'll have to fight for joy much harder than others. It's an ongoing battle, but let us, in the power of the Holy Spirit, persevere to the end with the hope and the assurance that one day we will see our Lord face to face, and then there will be no more struggle to rejoice. For in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So brothers and sisters, just to summarize and close, as Christians, it is our duty to rejoice in the Lord. Joy is not optional for the Christian, but this is no demand to smile when there's nothing to smile about, to fake happiness even though God's been terrible to us because the Lord has not been terrible to us and there is everything to rejoice about if you are in Christ. This isn't a call to force a smile by your own willpower, but to be truly and genuinely joyful within, in the depths of your being, in accordance with the hope that we have by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. It's an authoritative summons to joy given by the one who bore our griefs so that we would share in his eternal gladness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that though we deserved to be in misery forever because of our treason against you, you have instead invited us to the banquet of delights. You have invited us to eternal joy. And even now, you desire to impart some of the joys of heaven to us, even while we walk in the midst of this world. We thank you, Lord. Help us in our fight for joy. In Jesus' name, amen.